1: I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode is part of a series of episodes specifically anchored around Plan-Based World Expo 2022. It is presented by Plant-Based World Expo and has been produced in collaboration with Plant-Based World Expo. If you haven't heard already, Plant-Based World Expo is the must-attend, 100% plant-based trade show designed exclusively for food service and retail professionals, distributors, investors, and manufacturers. Now in its third year, Plant-Based World Expo is where you'll discover innovative plant-based products, hear from industry leaders and pioneers, and connect with the right people from the trade. And you'll be the first to sample mouth-watering plant-based food from groundbreaking U.S.-based and international companies. Rod Willis from Dot Foods, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Excited to have you here and looking forward to a pretty wide-ranging conversation about everything that you do and the role that Dot Foods plays in the food industry. This is a very crucial time. Uh, in an interesting um, economics uh, sort of uh, environment that we are operating in, Uh, and I think our listeners are very keen to hear about how Dot Foods and yourself are approaching some of these challenges and what role you're playing in solving many of them. So why don't we start right in the beginning, what it is that you do at Dot Foods, and for our listeners that don't know, what does Dot Foods do?
0: Sure, I appreciate the question. I've been with DOT for 25 years this year. Um, My current role is our director of natural and specialty here at DOT. Um, You know, I really oversee all of our business as it relates to uh, those product categories and really regardless of the channel that they're sold in. So whether the products go to natural grocery, uh, conventional or food service, really anywhere where those products would travel from our system, Um, you know, the, the, the brands that we have within our system all really, um, and the people that manage those all really roll up to me. Um, I've had a background at DOT prior to this role, um, working in our protein area. Prior to that, I I had some experience starting up our convenience business back in the early 2000s. And so, uh, really had a lot of different opportunities here within DOT, as far as the company is concerned. The company has been around since 1960. It's a family-owned operation and it's based in central Illinois um, is where the company started. And so our footprint today is 12 U.S. uh, distribution centers. We have uh, a location in Mexico that's a joint venture and we also have two locations in Canada. We currently um, deliver and get product to about 50 countries around the world, um, and have a very heavy influence, obviously, in North America. The, the real uh, value that we bring to the industry is that we're able to get products moved within our system to anywhere in the US uh, within a two to four day span with really no minimum by supplier. So if a supplier is currently shipping small orders all the way across the country to multiple distribution points, our our business model really solves for that problem. So instead of having that occur, uh, the products end up in our system, and when one of our mutual customers orders the product, we ship it to the distribution center that uh, that customer uses. So in retail, as an example, we may ship to Target and one of the Target distribution centers. In food service, as an example, we may ship to a Food service distributor like Cisco, and they would take the product to the last mile, whether it's to a store in retail or to a restaurant and food service. We don't go to the last mile, but we do get it to the point where um, the distributor in that market is really the one uh, that takes it the last mile.
1: So you play a very crucial role in this industry. Uh, I know some people refer to DOT as being a redistributor, but it doesn't accurately capture the significance of the impact that you can have in this industry. I've often, in recent conversations on this podcast and in in an outside of it, have been talking to people about how the food industry in general and especially emerging categories like plant-based are seeing a lot of demand from the consumer side. At the same time, there's an overabundance almost of supply from the manufacturing side. And we kind of seem to have this whole... Bottleneck in the middle, and if I really have to visualize where Dot comes in, it's exactly in that middle place where we need to like free up some bandwidth. If you had to look at this as a technology problem, uh, and you are sort of like the pipes connecting both ends of it, so I find that kind of unique in in the role that you play. That maybe some people don't quite understand.
0: Yeah, I would tell you that uh, you know we we would call ourselves a redistributor in food service. That's a term that food service uh, people understand and recognize and attach value to. In the retail and grocery world, the, the term we, we generally use is consolidator. Because when a retailer hears the word redistributor, they think uh, negative things that generally aren't accurate to how our business model works. And so like a lot of things in life, you have to make sure that the the words associated with who you are and what you do are representative of what you do, and so I would tell you that we we see uh, a huge amount of interest and in innovation and development in brands right now, and there's uh, a very significant role that retailers and food service uh, operators play. But to your point, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of um, unfinished business, you might call it, on how to connect the dots. No pun intended, of <laughs> course, but how to connect the dots between when the product is made and how it ultimately gets to the end consumer. And so even if you watch like a shark tank episode and they have food brands on there, you know, I watch that on a regular basis and I see uh, a brand gets on there and they talk about what's going on. And even the investors, which I happen to know a couple of those guys um, on the show um, you know, even they, they don't really talk about distribution very much. Mm -hmm. It's all about what's going to happen on the shelf but some of the biggest questions is I scream through my television, which they can't <laughs> hear me. But I scream through the television and say, but you're forgetting all the parts and all the details of how that product gets from, from point A to point B. And, uh, and I think that really is uh, a huge, uh, hugely important uh, thing when it comes to who's going to win in the long run. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a well-defined strategy for how the product is going to move and where it's going to go and how it's going to get there and what it's going to cost... Um, You could have the greatest tasting, best attributes of all time and the product could still fail.
1: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, and you've been in business for decades now. And I think although that definitely might have helped you when we went through this very unique time period in the last year, two years and a half, I think now since the start of the pandemic... Uh, I guess I have to ask this question: how did the pandemic change your business? to what extent has it returned back to where it was um, or have you emerged out of the pandemic or in the spirit that we 're starting to emerge out of the pandemic with a sort of a renewed focus on new things that you weren't doing before?
0: Well, I appreciate that question and it is a it is a painful topic for sure, but uh you know when we started into the pandemic in Uh, early 2020, in March of 2020, it was right around the time that Expo West was uh, getting ready to to go. And there was lots of questions around whether that that event was going to happen or not. And ultimately it got canceled. And right around that time, you know, our business in 2019, 2020 was about 70 percent food service and the remainder of it was either in retail grocery or convenience. And what happened was overnight, you know, restaurants stopped, um, having in, in, in house, uh, dining schools went virtual. It, it all, uh, collapsed almost overnight. And so, you know, thankfully at dot, we were able to, um, keep the lights on here. We were able to keep, uh, the majority of our people employed, we had some furloughs and things like that, but nobody lost their, their jobs permanently. We had some temporary uh, things like that. But um, in the end, you know, the company was strong and, and was able to push through. I think one of the big changes that occurred because of that, though, was our recognition that we were a little underweighted in other channels outside of food service. We've always wanted to be more of a player in retail grocery. And up to that point, we we hadn't had a great reason, um, at least from the retailer side to participate with Dot. And so all of a sudden we had lots of major retailers around the country that were having a hard time getting product and filling their shelves that, that reached out to dot and, and we looking for sources of supply wherever they could get it. And that, um, that interest level of continues to this day. And so one of the big changes we've had is that our business is moving more towards a 50-50 split between retail and food service today than it was in back in 2019. And that's been a positive development, especially in the natural and specialty area mm-hmm. where a lot of the retailers don't buy these products and truckloads direct, and they need a solution like DOT to be able to consolidate those orders. So it was really a great time for our group on the plant-based side and in natural specialty to provide a solution that covered, you know, food or for retail. And then even in food service, in a lot of cases, the brands that were shipping truckloads to Cisco all of a sudden didn't have truckloads to ship anymore. Mm -hmm. And so some of those orders started to flow through DOT because they were, you know, smaller in, in size. So overall it, um, at the end of the day, it's really made us a more well-balanced co- uh, company between food service and retail. And uh, I think it only exposes the need for good solutions in all supply chains, whether you' in, really in any channel that you're talking about is how do you get the product where it needs to go? And, and now the big challenge, obviously, is fill rate. Mm-hmm. So brands are having a hard time filling orders which is why you still see empty shelves in the supermarket. You're still ordering something off the menu in a restaurant, and they're telling you it's not available. Those things are not uh, going away anytime soon.
1: Interesting, right? This whole opportunity that has opened up in retail for those that were not focused on it before, And I think also retail has uh, generally experienced a spike in sales in the last couple of years. Now the question remains, can they keep that going, right? Can they beat those previous year's numbers? And so that's going to be a challenge. So I I don't see retail slowing down. um, But have you started to see the food service business returning to pre-pandemic levels? Or is it still too early for that?
0: I would say the food service business is returning to pre-pandemic levels. I know that when I see it in feel it in my own uh, personal life. When I walk into a restaurant, the, the restaurants are still busy. Yeah. There's still a wait to get in. Um, it, it, it appears that uh, there's not enough people working there <laughs> in most cases. Uh, maybe I'm going to the wrong places, but the places I go to, it seems like there's still real-life labor shortages for restaurants. The other big story that's about to, to occur is that schools, for the first time since 2019, yeah. are going back – Uh, to full attendance five days a week, just about everywhere. There might be a few exceptions out there, but for the most part, um, there was a huge amount of business that's done in schools uh, by a lot of the distributors on the food service side. And this is the first, quote unquote, normal year they've had in the last four. And so we're seeing already um, within our system and our data that those distributors that service the schools are getting an earlier start mm-hmm. on loading in inventory for the back to school season. And so you have the back to school season coming at the same time we have record inflation mm-hmm. and uncertain demand in in restaurants and eating out and things like that, but you know it, the data that we're seeing doesn't show a slowdown in food service at this point. We uh, we actually see it continuing to um, be pretty steady and higher, uh, despite all of the price inflation that's going on out there.
1: That is so interesting. And, you know, so now let's sort of dive deeper into the the, the parts of what you do that I'm, you know, I'm generally curious about everything you do, of course, but um, I'd love to get a better sense of how you view this specific category of plant-based foods under the banner of natural and specialty foods. Mm-hmm. Let's start, Pretty high level, like uh, you know. I, I know the data is showing that there's still a lot of consumer interest for these products. Obviously, as I said earlier, there's no shortage of new brands coming to the market, all looking to find a place in retail or food service. It seems like things are not moving as fast as they should, given the fact that there's so much supply and demand. What is your view of the overall category now that you've sort of had insight into it from its early days, at least the early days of this resurgence in the last five-ish years? Um, yeah, give me your general thoughts, and then we'll take it from there.
0: Sure. Well, I'd be happy to. So, you know, we uh, we really started out our journey with plant-based uh, back in 2015. Um, so that's when the Natural Specialty Group dot started, and, and really back in 2015, um, it was prior to the big splash that some of the large brands like an Impossible or Beyond Meat, uh, some of those brands were still not yet household names at that point. And so we've really been able to see it uh, from the start or close to the start uh, to present day. So that gives us about a six-and-a-half-year look uh, into what's going on. And uh, I would tell you that I think that the the it really feels like we're in about the third inning of a, a nine-inning ball game here, as it relates to their trajectory on plant-based. Uh, we continue to see more entrants come into the space with new innovation, um, new categories, uh, new proteins, or you know, new, new things to emulate uh, on the plant-based side. And so we're we're really uh, we're not seeing the decline or the the predicted decline that's been popular in the media as of late. So. What I would tell you is that growth continues to be steady and higher. Some entrants uh, aren't going to make it, uh, but some are going to make it and thrive. And so I do believe that the, the, the outlook for plant-based long-term is excellent. And to add to that point, when we look at our growth rate across different categories at DOT and different pieces of our business, uh, it's still one of the highest performing categories year over year in our business right now. And there is some noise in there with COVID and you know, trying to decipher what exactly happened during that stretch. But as a general rule, I would tell you that we're more bullish on plant-based categories, especially in uh, alt-based meat and alt-based dairy. Those two areas uh, continue to outperform, and uh, we don't see it slowing down anytime soon as it relates to our business, especially on the food service side. Uh, you know, there's a lot of noise that, that, you know, it's, it's on the cable TV and everything talking about grocery sales and empty shelves and things like that. But I, I would tell you that the adoption of more plant-based items in food service is really, um, in the early stages, almost like what it was in, in retail five or six years ago. So, so for brands that are, are looking to expand their footprint, um, ignoring the food service opportunity would be a mistake
1: yeah and you know the last two and a half years obviously have been a bit unfortunate because of what happened with food service um, as a result of the pandemic but given that we're starting to emerge out of it and as according to your data it sounds like things are returning to normal i I see that anecdotally but it's great to hear it from you because you have a Mm -hmm view of what's happening across the country. I'm curious what do some of the food service um, clients of yours, the the buyers really, what are they really looking for? What are some of the big questions you get from them when they're looking to explore new brands in this category?
0: Well, I would tell you that uh, without naming any specific customer, but I would tell you that in general, the food service buyer is reactive uh, more than they are proactive in a lot of cases. And so they already have dairy products. They already have uh, meat products. They have other categories of product that aren't plant-based and they have good sales on them. And so in a lot of cases, it really requires their customer, whether it's a restaurant or a school or healthcare, whatever it might be, to then go to them and say, we want these kinds of products because this is who our consumer is. Probably the easiest example would be college and university. So you have a younger audience there that's more centered around animal welfare. They're centered around just plant-based healthy eating. And so that's been a great incubator for food service uh, with, that, with that subgroup. And, and so for, for businesses that service colleges, universities, and even into high schools, there's definitely uh, a groundswell of demand coming from those user groups. And so what typically happens is that when those user groups make enough noise and demand enough of these kind of products, it really forces the hand of the distributor who we sell to have to act. So then they come to us and and they're really in need of a solution to a consumer that they aren't really serving in the right way today. So the the trick to the whole thing is to make sure that our offering is wide enough that we can handle most categories depending on what that particular customer wants. If they come to us and they're looking for a gluten-free cookie uh, or they're looking for an almond milk and we don't have those items, uh, then it makes it even more difficult because they have to try to source it direct Mm -hmm. or go online and, and there's just not a lot of great places to find product um, out there if it's, if it's for a one-off situation. So, you know, Customer X needs to order five cases of a gluten-free cookie to sell to XYZ University. You know, that's a tough one for the supplier to handle, too, that makes that cookie because they may not be in a position to be able to ship those five cases. They may have to, you know, FedEx them or whatever. It just doesn't create an efficient supply chain for anyone. So us being able to anticipate what those needs will be. And then having an offering at least um, to be able to provide it is key. The other thing I would tell you is that the attribute is more important than the brand in most cases. So when XYZ distributor calls or contacts dot foods, they don't say we want XYZ brand of gluten-free cookie. They say, do you have any gluten-free cookies for X price? And if you do, I'll take five cases. Mm -hmm. So I do think that the attribute becomes the first um, concern because that's really what the buyer is shopping for is the attribute because their customer isn't typically brand loyal at that point. And then there have been some brands in plant-based that have done a great job of creating brand identity and loyalty. But I would tell you that the majority of products that we sell, um, brand loyalty is third or fourth after the attributes and really, you know, what the product actually is.
1: And how does that work in a category like plant-based meat where it's, you know, if you read the, it is a reality, but also if you read some of the negative press around plant-based lately, the criticism is that there's too many companies in each category and they all sort of sell the same products and there's not enough room for all of them. Maybe they're specifically talking about retail and perhaps that's true in retail and there'll be a few category leaders that emerge, let's talk about food service where you, you know, you just mentioned that the brand loyalty is less important. It's more about whether they're looking for a certain type of product to have certain perhaps macronutrient profiles and perhaps be gluten-free at the same time. Um, And of course, price is always a consideration. So, you know, how does, how does plant-based meat fit into the the food service um, sort of buyer mindset really?
0: Yeah, well, I would tell you that, you know, plant-based meat, if you think about restaurant business for a second and, you know, menu uh, menu identification, meaning that um, if there's a popular brand that somebody's heard about, a consumer walks into a, a national chain restaurant and they're looking for an item, if they see the one that's familiar to them, um, there's definitely more of a chance, I think, that it resonates with the consumer so i think in the plant-based meat category there's a couple big players out there and they you know they've done a good job of concentrating on a lot of the chain accounts that have really expanded their message and so uh in those cases i think the product is probably a little less price sensitive uh, in a higher end uh, chain restaurant you know a plant-based uh, burger as an example. You know, those those generally sell at least what I've seen, you know, 14 15 $16 for the burger in a restaurant setting, sit-down restaurant. Uh, and the name recognition definitely helps them with the price point. If there wasn't a, a name associated, I think it would be more difficult to get that level of a, a ring uh, with that customer on that item. I think the other thing that a lot of chain restaurants are looking at is that they're looking at. The plant-based options as a magnet, if you will, to draw in a consumer that they don't currently service. Hmm. So if you think about it like this, you've got three friends and the four of you decide to go out on a Friday night and you're all trying to figure out where you want to go to dinner. Um, And you've got a uh, plant-based vegan eater in the car with you. And the other three are traditional meat eaters. Um, There's a good chance that the, the plant-based eater is going to speak up and say, I, I need this to, to go somewhere where I have good options to be able to choose from. And so if there's awareness by the four people in that car that they can go to XYZ restaurant and they can get a plant-based burger for their friend, the other three might still not eat uh, a plant-based meal there, but the fourth person will. And so if you think about that from a restaurateur standpoint, they just got a carload of four people to come in because of the needs of one of the four people in that car. And if that restaurant wasn't known or didn't have a plant-based item, that car goes down the road and goes across the street to the restaurant next door. So I think that a lot of restaurants have recognized this and they realize that they have to have a much better option on the menu than just a generic veggie burger Mm -hmm. to be able to meet the needs of all of their customers and especially new customers or, um, you know, maybe that vegetarian Uh, A plant-based eater has never eaten there, but the other three people have, and they're not going to eat there tonight if there's not something there available for their fourth person. So the other interesting part of this is that the food cost on plant-based burgers tends to be higher than um, regular beef, as an example. And so the restaurant typically makes less money on a a plant-based burger than they would on a regular burger. And so they featured on the menu, but you know, how much promotion is going on in the restaurant to get the three meat eaters to convert over to a plant-based eater, unless the restaurant's really themed that way. So if it's just a traditional restaurant, they want to make it available Mm -hmm. and they want to make the product easy to find, but they're, they're tend to not lead with it. Uh, other than the fact that they want to draw in people that are driving down the road that might have a variety of uh, nutritional requirements.
1: Yeah, that's such useful insight. Uh, let's stick with plant-based meat. I'm sure you've got uh, even more insights you can share here. So I really want to get into it because you know we felt like back in when you said when you launched in this space in 2015 was sort of the early days of this resurgence of plant-based meats, right? And I, if you really wanted to pinpoint a moment, it was probably I don't know who came first, but the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger around the same time both came out with products that were. You know, very different from anything that that was there for the past for the prior twenty years, and they both went on to first tackle the burger category, and of course, um, both have experienced pretty monumental success in the last several years uh, with the burger category specifically, and have started to branch out slightly, you know, into sausages and breakfast sausages. What about other plant-based meat categories? I know chicken in the last year or two has maybe three years has been starting to be like the, you go to trade shows, at least in the last couple of years, when we've had trade shows, uh, I saw there were more plant-based chicken brands than anything else. It felt like what was happening in burgers a few years ago was happening with chicken, at least at the trade show level. Is that now translating into what you're seeing in food service? Is chicken starting to be more popular when it comes to plant-based products?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I would tell you, I think the jury is still out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we've seen so far is that there's a lot of interest in um, plant-based chicken items. Uh, just anecdotally, there's been interest. Uh, that interest hasn't really translated to commercial success just yet, as far as we can tell. And and so I, I do think it's, it's similar to the early days of Impossible and Beyond, where uh, it required some education, um, and some awareness of what these products actually are and what they can do. And I do think that that story is really yet to be completely told. You know, we're obviously, uh, you know, carrying some uh, major brands in that space right now. You know, from the looks of it, from our end, there's there's a, uh, there's a fair amount of interest. Part of it, uh, for me, just thinking through it is, you know, there's chicken that goes into a lot of other things. You think about like a Mexican item like a burrito or um, there's all kinds of things, you know, that chicken can go into. And so I think that right now the focus really by the brands that are out there is to provide a center of the plate finished product that would compete with like a chicken breast as an example. But I do think that there's a a big opportunity for the right player, and I haven't really seen it yet, but for the right player to – Uh, create a chicken item that's an ingredient that goes into other products. And so chicken is much more of an ingredient in a lot of cases. Uh, Unlike a burger, you know, you have beef that can go into other things too. But, uh, you know, the burger is such an easy one because it's, um, you know, from a carbon footprint standpoint for cattle and just the resources required for beef, the animal welfare issues that are going on, you know, uh, it takes two years to, raise uh, a cow to, uh, to to then convert that to, to food. Whereas, um, you know, chicken, you know, a chicken's life cycle is about 45 days mm. uh, from start to finish, which surprises a lot of people. Uh, but it is only about a 45 day life cycle. Um, the issues with animal welfare on chicken quite aren't quite the same as they are with beef. And so I think that there are some people that will have always eaten regular chicken, but won't eat beef. So they look for a plant-based option in beef. So to me, I think there's probably fewer um, consumers that will will care that chicken is plant-based than there were beef. So I think the market is a little smaller on the consumer side. But if those items could be integrated into other products where that becomes an opportunity, a plant-based uh, breakfast or lunch item of some kind, I do think that there's a big upside there for you know, somebody to come and innovate in that space.
1: Yeah, and you know, even the bigger players like Beyond and uh, Impossible, uh, I- at least in the plant-based space, have both now launched chicken products, um, and and I think both are sort of tender-like or maybe mm-hmm. nugget products, um, which is interesting because I think those fulfill a specific uh, use case, and I think there's enough stats to back it up why, and also explains why there's so many plant-based chicken nugget companies now. <laughs> Um, but you know it's it's fascinating about all the the psychology of consumer decisions also, how much they play into this, right? Because of course, maybe red meat has has sort of always been associated with perhaps um, higher health risk, and now people are becoming more aware of the environmental impact, um, uh, and then perhaps animal welfare as well. Chicken, on the other hand, tends to be the alternative they go for when they stop eating red meat. Uh, Which is interesting because actually maybe from an animal welfare standpoint, chicken's worse. Um, But from an environmental standpoint, maybe depending on what you're comparing it to, if you're comparing it to beef, it is definitely better. Um, But it also kind of brings up this broader question is that should, and I'm sure all the companies in the space are grappling with it, which is should you look out for new categories that could be the next burger or maybe the burger is the burger, right? And there's nothing like it. Um, so plant-based seafood, for example, right, that would, that would be a category that's starting to emerge, but I'm assuming you haven't seen that much interest in, and, in, and growth in that space. So I could be wrong about that.
0: No, it's a great call out. I would tell you that, uh, you know, it's pretty early in the seafood, um, uh, side of things. We do have a number of plant-based seafood companies that we're currently working with and sell their products today. I, I would tell you right now that I, I think the, the, the acceptance in the, in the market for plant-based seafood is slower than what most people probably predicted. Um, and again, I, I think it gets back to uh, what problem are we trying to solve? So if it is an animal welfare, and there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of vegetarians out there, or pescatarians, I might say, that won't eat um, a land-based animal product, but have no problem eating, um, you know, seafood. So, so you, again, you, you go from the burger, which is kind of front and center as, uh, the poster child for, uh, a lot of things that may not be good. And then you migrate your way to seafood, which is generally considered a healthy option to meat, And it's, you know, sustainably raised and farmed. And there's, there's a lot of other things going on there that make it less, objectionable to people that have abandoned, uh, traditional meat. So now you're getting into items that would have to appeal to somebody who's already a seafood, um, eater, uh, for those reasons. And so I think the market for seafood, um, is going to be limited. Um, and I, there, there, there can definitely be exceptions to that. There can be innovation, but it just isn't, you know, it, it does, it's, it's not going to overtake, uh, you know, the the burger world in terms of sales anytime soon. I just think that there's fewer problems to solve there. There's less consumption of those kinds of items than traditional burgers, as an example, or chicken. You know, seafood as an ingredient and plant-based seafood as an ingredient, I think also uh, is an area that needs to be explored. Because I think in that case, you know, there might be some opportunities to play in retail frozen foods, uh, you know, with the plant-based seafood item, you know, you want to do, say, a, uh, a, a frozen pasta with, with uh, plant-based shrimp. You know, I could see something like that doing pretty well. But, um, you know, on the food service side, it, it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough road right now. And, and I'm still not 100% convinced that in the long run, it's going to be a major category. I think there will always be product out there. And I think innovation will continue. But it's going to have to be something pretty special to crack the code, and I just don't think we've seen it yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, given how that the this this new sort of uh, growth in the plant based space has been around now for about five or six years, um, and of course, still very early days. Uh, but you would typically have it's enough time to have gathered enough data that perhaps at this point, if there was there was interest in every category you would start to see signs of that and maybe it's just going to take another five years uh, you never know with some of this stuff right um any i, I know you mentioned the center of plate chicken breast as po- potentially being something that uh could be of interest to um especially in food service any products or categories you find people are asking about that you you're sort of surprised that, that there's nothing out there currently
0: well, I think one big category I hadn't mentioned yet is the pork category. Mm-hmm. So there's a fair amount of innovation going on right now in pork, and when you look at global consumption across the world, you know pork is um, by far out, outstrips beef when it comes to um, you know you know the number of people that consume it, and so especially when you get into Asia and places like that you know, pork is, is off the charts in terms of uh, demand. And so I think, uh, you know, the pork category, I've seen some really good innovation here in the last couple trade shows I've been at on the pork side. So I think um, if I had to make a prediction on this. I, I would say that there's a good chance that plant-based pork may be a bigger category long-term than plant-based chicken and definitely bigger than plant-based seafood. So I do think that that's a fairly fertile ground for innovation and for brands to emerge. And the ones that are really in the early stages here are, are being well-received especially on the food service side. Um, And so I would expect if if there's some winners that emerge in the next six months to a year, like anything uh, that that's successful, you'll have other people that want to jump into that space. So if I were, an investor or I were an entrepreneur right now, and I was looking at what's going to happen next in plant-based, I would take a close look at the pork business.
1: Very interesting. And, you know, I I have to ask this because, again, this seems to be in in the media circles. It's something that's talked about a lot, which is that plant-based foods or some plant-based products or maybe the most popular ones do not meet or live up to the uh, health halo that they they seem to profess. So, is this a are you starting to see a demand for, say, cleaner label products? Is that something that you're actually getting interesting questions about, or is that more media noise and and less about practicalities of what what food service buyers are looking at?
0: Yeah. I would tell you that there is more focus on the ingredient statement and it's primarily coming from other industry groups. Mm. So as a good example, the Organic Foods Association um, really doesn't like um, the ingredient decks of a lot of plant-based burgers, to to put it bluntly. And they would actually promote grass-fed organic beef over a plant-based option. Um, So if you follow their Instagram and their media feeds, uh, they're clear in the fact that they, you know, they they look at a plant-based burger as a highly processed, uh, engineered product. So I think what you're seeing, though, is, well, who is really consuming a plant-based burger? And do they care? And so the plant-based burger companies, I would tell you just as a general statement, there's not enough vegans out there for them to keep the lights on. And so what they're really trying to do is identify people that are plant-based flexible, meaning that they'll they'll still eat a regular burger one night a week, but maybe instead of that second burger, they'll eat a plant-based option. Because the market is so much bigger to appeal to a meat-based eater than it is to a plant-based, pure play, plant-based only. And again, that those numbers are obviously going to change over time, but in the current uh, world we live in, there's just a lot more meat eaters than there are vegetarians. And so if, if they can convert meat eaters into a plant-based eater, and along the way, it's got a few ingredients in it that, that aren't necessarily uh, a healthier option, they're willing to take that trade-off to keep the flavor and taste profile um, comparable to what that meat eater would normally experience on a on a meat item. And so I think there's kind of a tug of war going on between mm-hmm. we want a clean ingredient deck to appeal to a segment of the consumer base. But if we make it too clean and too pure, it may not taste as good or mimic what the real, quote unquote, the real thing would be. And so when you're dealing with real life sales and marketing and market share and things like that, uh, my, my guess is that the flavor profile Um, and just the eating experience will win out over the ingredient deck in the long run until there's a large enough population of people that care about the other things more. And I just don't see that that's going to happen in the next five years. I think it'll be something that a lot of people want to talk about, but in terms of translating that to sales or making some big changes to an item, unless they can make the changes and keep the product tasting and performing the same, they can do that. I think they'll move there, but- in a lot of cases, it's difficult to have, have uh, all of those things in one item.
1: Yeah, I think those insights are so spot on. Um, I mean, at least I've seen that anecdotally. It seems like we're, again, because you've got to contextualize all of this. We are very early days. I mean, we sometimes forget that. We think that everyone's eating plant-based. That's not true. We're starting to definitely see a shift in that direction. But the early phase of that, I think you can almost break this down into phases. We're at like phase one out of, I don't know, 10 maybe. And phase one is like, people are maybe even starting to mentally accept that a plant-based meat option or dairy option or a cheese option has the same level of taste and satisfaction that they get out of the one that is uh, animal-based. And I think that's going to, take a few years to sort of normalize and level set uh, and then those same eaters most likely down the line will be like well now let me look for something that maybe is not exactly the same but perhaps is similar but maybe has a cleaner nutritional profile so it's almost like they move through the phases of realizing that what they should really be eating is more whole plants or whole whole foods in general Um, And some people won't make that entire journey, right? Maybe they'll be stuck at phase three of that journey. Um, But again, as a company, as a manufacturer, you've got to meet people where they are right now. And if the market is, is at phase one, that's where you can get the most you know, the fastest starting point. If you're trying to sell a product aimed at phase four and 80% of the population is at phase one, you're going to have a tough time surviving uh, and staying in business for the next five years. So, you know, that kind of brings up this whole question of like, where is, um, and maybe I'll ask it from the context of Dot Foods, right? You can't speak for the entire category. I'm sure you have thoughts on it, but how is Dot Foods approaching, this, uh, industry or this segment of the industry, I I know you mentioned earlier, you're still bullish about it. It's very early, but you know, how are you putting time and resources in, in making sense of all of this and where does this fit into maybe some of your own company's commitments around sustainability and, uh, you know, longer term growth plans?
0: Sure. Well, I would tell you that, uh, when we look at the growth of this category, um, you know, we are capitalists by nature at DOT, uh, we, we want to provide the items that people want to buy. And so, um, uh, if that means that we need to be aggressive about going out and discovering new categories or items or segments that we're not currently in, um, you know, that's really where our focus is. So a lot of it has to do with going to things like the, the plant-based shows, uh, you know, you know, talking to different industry people about, you know, what the trends are looking at the data. There's just a lot of things that we can do to um, identify where the future winners might be. And it really gets back to the example I provided earlier about the buyer, say at a food service distributor that gets a phone call or an email or whatever, and from a college or university that's looking for a certain item. And when they go to DOT, they're typically looking at dot as maybe one of their first options, and if we can be out ahead of that and have an item in stock and available that they can, they can even bring in a case to let their customer try it. Um, you know, we're going to win more than we lose when that happens. And so, I would tell you, with us, it's it's probably more about making sure we're 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 ahead of the need that may the need may not know it's out there. So, the easy example I can give is that. Nobody really knew they needed an Apple iPhone until the iPhone was created. And now you can't live without it. And so, you know, when it comes to offering, when it comes to innovation, you know, what are what are mainstream items going to look like? So we've anticipated that need so that our customer doesn't even know they need X, Y, Z item, but they get a call for it. They look it up and then they're pleasantly surprised when they see we have one. And then they can give their customer the yes answer that they want. And if that customer likes it, it creates loyalty between them and their operator, say a restaurant or a school, and then they become the source of supply for that product from that point forward. So we have an eye on innovation. We have an eye on what categories are moving well. Um, And then we're always open-minded to new, um, new categories because, You know, there are people out there making products that others haven't really thought they needed yet, but once they're available, no different than an iPhone, now all of a sudden everybody wants it. So we have to just make sure that we're doing our homework and we're hearing from lots of different stakeholders on what they want so that we're in a position to provide it before um, it's time to, to take the order, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. You're sort of in the in the prediction business if you really want to be successful, right? And it and it, I know it's a cliched quote, but that skit to where the puck is going, not where it has been. <laughs> uh, I, I probably yeah. shouldn't have repeated that one, but it came to my mind when you said that, uh, which also explains the importance of of, of being in 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 um, trade shows at where when new products are being showcased, meeting with innovative new brands. Um, also like talking to a, a diverse set of uh, consumers and trade people, people in the industry, whether it's investors or uh, buyers themselves to see uh, where the consumer interest is shifting. I mean, we, frankly, we don't know, we can just make best guesses, but the ones who make the informed guesses are going to be ready when the time comes, right? The last thing you want is, as you just said, is that Someone calls you saying we need X product and and you now are going to take three months to make it happen and they're going to go to the next uh, uh, customer to get that from, right? So it's it's a fascinating, interesting space to be. And I think we all try to do our best to guess what's going to happen. No one can truly predict. But I guess we can categorically at least say that the space is growing and, and certain categories are growing much faster than others. What do you have to say about Uh, The doom and gloom that some people are predicting in the space that there's too much hype and there's too much money floating around and there's too many startups. Um, I don't think this is the first time we've seen that. Maybe in this plant-based category, obviously it's the first time, but I'm sure from your experience working in this space for other food categories, have you seen similar trends and usually how have they turned out for companies
0: yeah, I it's, it's, appreciate the question. I, I would tell you that back in the early 2000s, one of the jobs I had here at DOT was to develop out our convenience store channel business. And so this was 2002, 2003, somewhere around there. And at that time, right after we got in, into the convenience channel uh, was really when the energy drink craze took off and everybody and their brother had an energy drink. And I remember there being, you know, 20, 30 brands. I'd sit at my desk and I'd have energy drink companies coming in and, and I could only take a sip because by the end of the day, I would had four <laughs> or five cans and about ready to fly off my seat. And at the time, uh, you know, it was just a category everybody was trying to get in on. You had Red Bull and you had Monster, you had Rockstar. And then over time you had all these other brands that were out there and, and it it doesn't seem that different than what we're seeing now. And if you were an investor back in monster energy back when it started out, I promise you that you'd still like, you know, what you're doing there. If you've looked at that stock over the last 20 years, but um, you know, I look at the, the plant-based meat in particular is similar in that way. And that you're going to have three or four established players become the national standard. Uh, But then you're going to have other, Uh, brands that fill different needs that can come in. So a quick example in the energy drink category is now you've got a brand called Bang and Bang has taken the world by storm in a mature category where the other three guys have been out for a long time. And so, uh, you know, will that happen again in plant-based meats? I I believe it will. I think that there's going to be different, uh, different things going on. The other thing I think that makes this different is that there is still, um, you know, a population of younger people that their economic power hasn't been brought to full force yet. So you've got people that are in middle school, high school, early college, early adulthood, and, and these are the consumers of the future. You know, the uh, the dinosaurs are dying off. I mean, it's a reality. Uh, you know, the people that, that, that aren't in the movement, you know, people over a certain age, may never want to be a plant-based eater for uh, whatever reason. But the, the tidal wave of opportunity is yet to really establish itself. And so if you believe that to be true, and I personally do, I've got two college-age kids myself and I've got one in high school, and they are a lot more tuned into all of these things than people my age. And so if you believe that that's the wave that's coming, I don't know how it doesn't grow exponentially over time. The other thing that I would tell you is that we do have a a built-in time machine in the United States that a lot of people don't think about, and that's called the coasts generally drive the trends, and then the rest of the country follow. And so when you're in the middle of the country where I'm based, it's kind of like looking back five years into time compared to what you're going to see in Los Angeles or New York. So I spend a lot of time in both of those cities, walking the stores, eating in the restaurants, Experiencing what's going on there, because it's not always the case. But in a lot of cases, what's popular in LA right now is going to be really popular in St. Louis in five years. And so, the plant-based movement's really a coastal movement. When we look at the data and we look at uh, where these products are being sold, you know, Austin, Texas, New York, Miami, uh, Chicago, LA, Seattle well, there's a lot of other cities I didn't mention there that will eventually figure this out. And so I think, again, I think there's a huge opportunity in parts of the country that the media tends to ignore. Uh, There's a lot of white space out there, if you want to call it that, where uh, the right products being introduced to new customers are generally only a plane ride away. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can be new to somebody else and still be within the United States. So we, we look at the trends on the coast and then try to figure out how those are going to translate to the rest of the country because they always do. It's just a matter of what adoption rate we're talking about.
1: I love that answer. That was, that was really well said. Um, I I'm going to close out this conversation with uh, one, one last question. Um, Obviously we're recording this episode uh, as part of a series connected to plant-based world 2022. Uh, I know you're going to be there. Anything specifically you're excited about when it comes to this year's trade show, uh, I know you've been at previous plant-based worlds, so you kind of know what to expect, expect except I think this year is going to be different, bigger, better, hopefully um, hopefully with a lot more clarity. Yeah, tell us what you're looking forward to and what people can expect and and anything else you want to share that, that people should be looking out for when it comes to dot foods.
0: Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, I'm extremely excited to be on stage this year to talk about that, the industry, what we're seeing, uh, answer questions that, that, that come up, meet people before and after the, the event. I think, you know, I attended the inaugural uh, event in New York um, right before the world, you know, fell apart. And then I was at the show last year. To me, it's really exciting to see the level of participation, the number of exhibitors that um, have increased. And really, just the different innovation that occurs that's at that show. And so it gives us a lens on on the cutting edge, and it's really dialed into plant based. If you go to other shows, you know, there are the category is represented, but obviously, it's not the focus of an entire show elsewhere. So it really allows us to to see what's happening, and, and probably most importantly for us, candidly, is just the networking opportunities. So if you see me at the show, I'm about six foot seven inches tall, hard to miss. Uh, I'll have a Dot shirt on. If you see me at the show, you know, please feel free to walk up and introduce yourself. You know, what I what I've told everybody since 2015 when we started in our journey here is that is that we want to be a friend of the industry. We want to be easy to talk to, easy to reach, uh, easy to work with. And that's really the hallmark of Dot as a company over the last 62 years is a family-friendly type of an approach. So uh, don't hesitate to come up and uh, tap me on the shoulder if you see me at the event. Love to meet you um, and certainly talk about where we're headed and how we might be able to help your specific situation.
1: Well, thank you, Rod. I can say from my own experiences that you're very generous with your time uh, at trade shows. And so people should take advantage of that. There's just hope most likely won't be enough time in those two days. But, uh, it never is. you know, I, I appreciate your insights today. This has been uh, I, I knew this was going to be a really great conversation. And I and I think not only did our listeners, but I myself, I think, learned a lot from it. So I appreciate your time and your insights today. Uh, looking forward to seeing you in September in New York. Um, thank you very much for being on today.
0: Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we certainly appreciate it from, uh, in, you know, personally as well as from DOT standpoint. Um, you know, we want to do everything we can to help the industry and the plant-based movement. And uh, it's, it's opportunities like this that help us make that happen. So uh, thanks. Back to you.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.
0: 18- us.